Welcome everyone to this episode of the Planet Pantry Podcast, a show about the pantry staples that people reach for every day to make the foods they love. This week, we're continuing our exploration of bananas and plantains, and how they made it from the islands of Southeast Asia to plates around the world. I'll give a bit of a disclaimer that this episode is a little heavy, but I encourage you to stick around because these stories are important and after the history, we go into some amazing dishes made with these fruits. It's no secret that humanity is far from perfect and that we've done some messed up things, but together we can learn and become better eaters in the process. We can enjoy these dishes that make so many people around the world happy while applying our knowledge of history to our choices today. So without further ado, let's continue this amazing story of plantains and bananas. So last week, we left off in West Africa after following the travel of bananas and plantains from their origins in Southeast Asia. And at this point, I had an adorable story lined up about Anansi, the trickster character of many West African folktales. This was going to be my segue to the Americas because Anansi and his misadventures with plantains, along with other moral stories, are also part of Caribbean folklore. I'll still post some of those amazing stories on Instagram and Patreon, but for now I want to be careful not to gloss over why bananas, plantains, and Anansi are part of Caribbean culture today. Between the 15th and 19th centuries, around 12 to 13 million people were taken from their homes in West Africa and shipped across the Atlantic into ports across North America, South America, and the Caribbean. Even more would be born into slavery and millions died on the voyage or in seasoning camps when they arrived. There have been many instances of slavery throughout history and there are an estimated 40 million people in slavery today. But this instance of slavery is especially important to grapple with because many of us in the wealthier parts of the western world enjoy the prosperity of our homes today because of the wholesale slaughter enslavement and general dehumanization of native people, African people, and other groups. And at this point, looking back on our history, it's undeniable that we enjoy this prosperity because of some of the darkest, most brutal, and most evil practices in history. Things as we know them today simply wouldn't be the way they are without them. And the scars of this period are still very much present in our society today. We still grapple with the issues of racism, old Jim Crow, new Jim Crow, and all the other remnants of this dark time. Many of us who see a lot of good in our societies wish that they could exist independently of their histories, but the sad truth is that these things happened and we need to continue to address them. The fact is these things happened and the scars will always be there. And there's nothing we can really do about it, but we can still work on healing the wounds that remain open by having difficult conversations, acknowledging that the problems are there, and working on fixing what we can. All of this difficult but necessary work is key to responsibly and respectfully enjoying all of the amazing things that these people and their descendants have contributed to human culture. I'm not any kind of dedicated activist or anything, and I'm just learning about most of this myself. But I committed to creating a podcast about the histories of our favorite pantry staples and the history of bananas and plantains just wouldn't be complete without a mention of Atlantic slavery. That said, an interesting side note here is that as I mentioned in the last episode, there is some circumstantial evidence that these fruits may have existed in South America before the arrival of Europeans. 
This is because Polynesians were such prolific explorers that they may have brought bananas to South America from Asia as early as 200 BCE. Robert Langdon points to evidence of bananas throughout modern Latin America existing before European settlement, including reports of graves containing banana leaves and fruit. Bananas may have also been brought to eastern South America by West African explorers. One anecdote to give a little bit of credit to this is the story that when Spanish colonists were first exploring the Amazon River, banana trees were supposedly found just 24 years after bananas were introduced to the Caribbean in 1516. I love to daydream about the possibility of pioneering explorers from Africa or Asia carrying bananas over 2,000 years ago across the Pacific or the Atlantic Ocean. But it's that introduction in 1516 that has the most consensus as the origin of bananas in the Americas. It was that year that Friar Thomas Berlanga brought bananas from the Spanish colony of the Canary Islands to modern-day Dominican Republic, and he continued to bring them to South America on his travels. But bananas really traveled in big numbers along the routes of the slave trade. European slave traders came to believe that the survival rates along the Middle Passage were higher when slaves were fed foods that they were familiar with. The fact that up to one-third of enslaved people would die on each of these journeys, as well as other practical factors, led to the decision to stock African staples. And when slaves settled, if they settled, and if they had the space to do so, many propagated the foods that could provide them hearty sustenance and, I like to think, a small moment of nostalgia, joy, and hope. This is one of the most extreme examples of people keeping at least a loose connection to their roots through the foods they love. When a slave arrived in the Americas, their name was taken from them, as were their family, their pride, their language, and any access to their history or their humanity. This process of dehumanization was what turned a living, breathing, loving human into a working machine. But we should know that no matter how hard we try, we can never fully stomp out someone's humanity. Many of the people brought from Africa and robbed of everything would find brief moments of joy in their food, music, art, storytelling, and more. And this would become the foundation for the backbone of American culture. Black food, music, and general culture has influenced us in countless ways. And that's why it's important to remember this story and to think about how we can make things better today. We'll see some beautiful examples of these contributions to culture in a little bit when we go over some of the amazing plantain and banana dishes soon. But first, let's continue to explore how these fruits continue to travel through the Americas and also where those perfect, smooth, seedless yellow bananas that we know so well in North America come from. And you know, frankly, this kind of sucks. Soy sauce was a lot of work, and I loved it. But I wanted something relatively easy for my second subject so I could continue to explore the ins and outs of podcasting. And I don't know why I thought this, but I was like, yeah, bananas seem fun. These are amazing fruits, and I'm sure they've got an amazing story. And last week was great. Austronesian explorers, so many great dishes. But then you come across the Atlantic, and this story just keeps getting darker and darker. I don't regret doing it at all. These are important stories that, I, that need to be told, and don't get me wrong, I have had a blast doing this and learning so much. I just feel bad for bringing all of you down with me, 
but trust me, later on we're going to explore the brighter side of this story as we dive into some of the dishes made with these fruits and see how they're used in so many amazing ways. next part of this story is mostly about a single company, and it is so so crazy that there is a historical society dedicated specifically to it. This is a story of railroads, steamships, political coups, assassinations, and of course, bananas. This is the story of the United Fruit Company, which somehow still exists today as Chiquita Bananas. So in 1835, Henry Meigs parlayed his success in the lumber industry into some big-time real estate investments in San Francisco. These investments probably would have paid off eventually, but Meigs took on more debt than he could handle and became insolvent. Luckily, he knew that city work was paid out through warrants, which had to be signed by the San Francisco controller as well as the mayor. But this was inconvenient, so the controller would often keep books of effectively blank checks from the city signed by the mayor in his office. Meigs somehow got a hold of these books and started using them to write warrants for himself whenever he needed them. Upon discovery of this fraud, Meigs did the honorable thing and fled to South America. But his famous wharf that he built in San Francisco fell to the 1906 earthquake, and today the famous Fisherman's Wharf stands in its place. He landed in South America with only $8,000 to his name, which he lost pretty much immediately, so he had to pawn his watch to keep himself going. He eventually built a railroad between the Chilean capital of Santiago and Valparaiso. He continued building railroads, amassing wealth, and at his peak, he was effectively a dictator of Peru. He even had his own currency called Billetes de Migs. Before his death, Migs had signed a contract with the government of Costa Rica to build a railroad from the inland capital of San Jose to the port of Limon. He brought his nephew, Minor Cooper Keith, down from his ranch in Texas to help, and upon Meigs' death in 1877, Keith took over. During the construction, Costa Rica became unable to fund the railroad's completion, so Keith borrowed money from outside sources himself so that he could finish and renegotiate Costa Rica's debt. He came out of that negotiation with some pretty favorable terms on his end. He got a 99-year lease on the train route as well as 800,000 acres of land along the tracks, on which he would pay no tax. Remember as well that this construction was done in the heyday of terrible labor standards. 4,000 people, mostly locals and Chinese immigrants, are reported to have died in the construction of the first 25 miles. But that aside, it was completed and passenger travel proved insufficient to pay back the debts taken for construction. Keith turned to producing bananas on his 800,000 acres, and he would then use the trains to ship them to the coast and steamships to bring them for sale in the United States. This was such a lucrative endeavor that he founded the Tropical Trading and Transport Company, and soon after, he merged with the dominant banana producer in the Caribbean, the Boston Fruit Company, to form United Fruit. This merger put Andrew Preston in charge, and under his control, United Fruit built plantations and consolidated control over transportation, media, land, and so much more in many parts of Central and South America, as well as the Caribbean. 
they also bought up many of their competitors, including the Quiamel Fruit Company, owned by Sam Zemure. Zemure would eventually stage a hostile takeover to gain control of United Fruit. But in the 1930s, famously bad working conditions on plantations culminated in massive protests and calls for unionization by hundreds of thousands of workers, and governments throughout Central America started passing labor laws. And in 1952, the Guatemalan Congress very boldly passed the Agrarian Reform Act, which allowed Guatemala to seize unused United Fruit lands and distribute them to Guatemalan people. This really pissed off United Fruit, and they started pushing the false narrative that Guatemala was becoming a communist country, and that the Agrarian Reform Act had been conceived in Moscow. This led to the United States helping Carlos Castillo Armas and his supporters to overthrow the government of Jacobo Arbenz. At the time, a young man from Argentina was working as a doctor and a bookseller in Guatemala, and he helped to lead the opposition militia against the new regime. This resistance failed and the young man fled to Mexico where he became good friends with another political refugee from Cuba. That young man was Ernesto or Che Guevara and his friend was Fidel Castro. Castro would mimic some of the reforms taken in Guatemala upon his rise to power in Cuba. But from here, labor rights continued to be a problem. Revolutions happened, United Fruit expanded into new industries including oil and gas, and after becoming United Brands in 1970, the banana division was renamed Chiquita. And just like that, the company that we're so familiar with in the Americas today was formed. But Chiquita was still going to get into all sorts of shenanigans. In the 1990s, they entered into what was called the Banana Wars, and that saw them seizing and destroying shipments of their rival company, Fife's, with whom they are currently in the process of merging. But in the same decade as the Banana Wars, they were shown to have made payments to terrorist organizations in South America, as well as allowing them to use their facilities to transport weapons. They also lobbied against the Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act in the United States, and all of this is just insane stuff for a fruit company to be doing. And sadly, that dark history of United Fruit and Chiquita is how bananas became the world's most popular fruit. And you know what? We're so deep in this hole at this point, let's drag a complicated, nuanced political issue into the mix. At the moment, there are many thousands of people from Central and South America, including many from Guatemala and Honduras, taking the dangerous journey from their homes to apply for asylum at the southern United States border. They're doing this because their home countries are rife with corruption, many groups fighting, economic and natural disasters, among many other things. Nobody wants to leave their homes, let alone do they want to send their kids on this dangerous journey alone. But you do what you have to for the good of your family. I barely scratched the surface of this story, and believe me, I'm no expert. But if you look into the chronology listed on the website of the United Fruit Historical Society, there are a whole lot of events that begin with the phrase, the United States invaded, insert country here. I really don't think it's possible to think that we had nothing to do with the state of countries like Guatemala and Honduras today after hearing this story, which spans nearly 150 years and affects millions of people. 
Again, I'm no expert, so all that I'll say on this issue that we're presented with today is that we owe these people some empathy in the time of their struggle because there's a good chance that we caused it and we definitely played a role in it. So this is the story of bananas, whether we like it or not, and if you missed last week's episode, I encourage you to check it out if you want to fall in love with bananas again. There's some amazing and bright stories there, and there's some amazing and bright stories to come. The stories that we addressed this week are never fun to hear, but it's important that we know where our food comes from so we can make better choices and so we can better understand the state of our world today. Chiquita still does a lot of nasty stuff, but people being aware of this stuff and using their power as consumers have pressured that company into at least on the surface raising their labor standards for their workers. You don't have to stop eating bananas because of this story. Just be aware of it and make good choices and you might enjoy them a little more. Now at this point, it almost seems unfair if anyone is still listening to hit you with more sad news about the banana. But there is one more important thing to mention here. For much of United Fruits history, a banana known as the Colmichel dominated American markets. These bananas were of the sweet, snacking variety and their thick peels made them ideal for export. But growing only one variety leaves bananas incredibly susceptible to disease. And in the mid-20th century, Panama disease decimated Gromichel crops. Panama disease is a fungus that can easily spread through infected materials used in cultivation. The Gromichel was effectively eliminated from markets by this disease and was replaced by the Cavendish variety of bananas. Cavendish bananas are the smooth yellow bananas that many of us are very familiar with and they are immune to three of the four races of Panama disease. But once again, we have developed a monoculture with Cavendish being the best-selling banana by such a wide margin. 40% of all bananas and 99% of those grown for export are Cavendish. This is because growing Cavendish as a monoculture is very profitable and leads to high yields. But this practice is extremely irresponsible and threatens to disrupt the global food chain if diseases spread. This is again made worse by the fact that when we originally hybridized those two wild species to make human-friendly varieties, we took away the ability for bananas which we consume to reproduce sexually, meaning that all Cavendish bananas are effectively clones of each other. Various races of Panama disease and other diseases have continued to threaten plantains and banana crops around the world, with considerable outbreaks occurring recently in parts of Asia and Australia, including of the race which affects Cavendish bananas. This is currently held at bay through the heavy-handed use of pesticides, but in all honesty, the future of bananas is uncertain as researchers rush to find treatments for disease and new resistant crops. As consumers, the best thing we can do is to hold companies responsible and look into buying alternative varieties whenever possible. So with this long and complicated history exactly where it belongs, behind us but in our minds, Let's do what millions of people do every day, and let's forget about the past and get excited about some amazing plantain and banana dishes. These fruits have come to be used in so many dishes, and I guarantee that whenever you're listening to this podcast, millions of people are salivating over the warm smell of fried, stewed, roasted, or whatever preparation of plantains right now. So just as we did with some of the dishes last week, 
this week we're going to quickly explore some of the fundamental banana and plantain dishes of the Americas and the Caribbean. As usual, I couldn't possibly do justice to this massive region of the world, and I'm barely going to scratch the surface here. So beginning with some basics, pretty much everyone who has plantains fries them. These vary a lot from place to place, but generally you'll find fried sweet plantains, which I know as maduros, and fried green plantains, which I know as tostones, as well as a variety of sweet and savory fritters. Steamed preparations are also pretty popular, and a good example of them are pasteles from Puerto Rico. So starting in one of the top plantain regions of the world, the islands of the Caribbean, we see influence from West Africa in what has become a uniquely Caribbean plantain food culture. Throughout the Caribbean, plantains are fried, roasted, and steamed in a wide variety of ways to be served as a starch alongside a full meal, a snack, an appetizer, or even a dessert. Puerto Rico has good examples of these basic preparations in the tostones which I mentioned earlier, which are slices of green plantains that are fried, smashed, and then fried again to get a delicious, crispy, fluffy side that goes especially well with really saucy dishes. Similarly, maduros are made from riper yellow plantains and are generally fried in a shallow pan of oil. Their natural sweetness gives them a delicious kind of glaze over the crispy, soft slices. Many places have some variation of these two fundamental preparations, but I'm most familiar with the Puerto Rican versions thanks to my wonderful family-in-law. But there is also a long list of uniquely Puerto Rican plantain dishes, and among the most legendary is mofongo. Mofongo is made by frying plantains and then mashing them in a traditional kind of mortar and pestle called a pilon. The mashed plantains are formed into a ball or a mound and topped or occasionally filled with a variety of fried, roasted, or steamed meats or vegetables. This amazing dish has its roots in the West African fufu that we discussed last week, but over time it has evolved into something that is undoubtedly uniquely Puerto Rican. In the Dominican Republic, you can start your day or continue it with mangu con los tres golpes, which is another preparation of mashed plantains served with fried cheese, salami, and eggs, and then topped with pickled red onions. In Jamaica, you can have ital stew with plantains. Ital is a food philosophy born out of the Rastafarian movement. It emphasizes eating food grown from the earth around oneself. In Costa Rica, you can treat yourself to a full meal on a single plate known as casado, which means married. Whether this name refers to the married working men who eat it or the marriage of so many delicious things on one plate is unknown, but it's often rice, beans, plantains, meat, picadillo, eggs, avocado, and so many more options, so who's thinking about the etymology? In Rondonia, a northern state of Brazil, you can enjoy pasoca de banana, a sweet mix of ripe plantains and coconut milk with your coffee. And in Peru, you'll find tecacho, which are balls of mashed fried plantains often served with cecina or dried salted meat. Colombia has a dish called calleye or cabeza de gato, which has mashed plantains sauteed with tomato, onion, garlic, and spices. It's served with avocado and grated cheese. Rellenitos de plátano are a popular Guatemalan dessert. Sweet plantains are boiled with cinnamon and mashed. 
A filling of beans, chocolate, and cinnamon is encased in the mash, and the rellenitos are fried until golden brown delicious. In Mexico, plantains are especially popular in the Yucatan and Chiapas, but find homes in regional dishes of states like Oaxaca and Pueblo. An example of this is Moncha Montel, a delicious mole that some have started to make with plantains. In North America, plantains are used widely by the diasporas of many of the places talked about so far, and many chefs have brought their favorites and adapted them for the American environment and palate. A good example of these foods traveling around are jibarito, a sandwich made by using plantains cut lengthwise then fried as bread. This idea is said to have been conceived by Jorge Munoz and Coqui Feliciano in Colombia. They served it at their restaurant Platano Coco in Aguada, Puerto Rico. Puerto Rican fans brought it to Chicago where it became popular and spread around the United States. But people in the United States and Canada of European descent generally prefer yellow Cavendish bananas as snacks or in desserts like banana pie or banana bread or bananas foster. Is the story of how bananas traveled around the world and became one of humanity's favorite fruits and most important pantry staples. As usual, if I made any mistakes here, please let me know in any way you can, and if you have any thoughts on the show or any ideas for future episodes, I'd love to hear about those too. This was a tough episode. People love bananas and they bring joy to millions every day. When a story goes in these dark directions, it's hard not to feel like a bit of a wet blanket just taking away all the fun from foods that so many people find important. And honestly, the takeaway here is that we can love bananas as much as we want and we don't have to give them up because of their troubled past. But some kind of fundamental change needs to take place within the banana industry or we might not even have that choice in the near future. So if you live in a region where bananas or plantains can grow, try finding a local producer. Or if you want to dive deep into this world, try growing a banana plant yourself. If you live outside of these regions, just try buying more sustainable brands and together we might be able to pressure companies like Chiquita into better practices which can benefit us as consumers as well as their workers. Thank you again for listening and I'm continuing this week to list some of my sources in the show notes. They don't all fit within the character limit and I'm looking for a better way to share my sources but in the meantime, feel free to reach out with anything that doesn't quite fit. Also, in the notes, you'll find links to Patreon and Instagram, where I'll be sharing some stories of the Akan character Anansi later this week. But until next week, try some new banana and plantain dishes, have meaningful conversations about food, and just overall, enjoy your life.